Doctors here are raising concerns about the rise of self-ordered medical tests as a new Australian study finds they have limited usefulness for consumers. If you are willing to pay, a range of medical tests can be ordered from private laboratories without a doctor's involvement, including full blood count, cholesterol and tests for sexually transmitted diseases. These cost anywhere from $25 to $340. Dr Brian Betty, Chair of General Practice New Zealand, says many family doctors have noticed the trend towards self-ordered tests but cautions that without expert interpretation they can cause unnecessary anxiety and potentially unnecessary medical procedures. A recent Australian study has found the benefits to most consumers are questionable. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But first, Dr Brian Betty's with us. Kia ora. Uh, kia ora, Catherine. What kind of tests are we talking about here? Well, um, we're not talking about tests that patients may do for, say, if diabetes, they do a regular blood self-monitoring blood test, you know, that type of thing, or a rat test at home that you may do for COVID. These are tests where the patient can order tests at the laboratory and go and get a full range of blood tests for various conditions, like what they call a heart checkup, um, um, blood counts, vitamin D, a whole range of tests that the patient can pay for. Um, at the laboratory and have those done uh, without involvement of any type of clinical clinical um, uh, oversight or, 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 or person to or, or general practitioner or doctor or nurse to, to to look at what test has been ordered and why they've been ordered. So these can just be self-ordered at the lab and paid for. So it's a private market basically. Let's look at some of them. They're quite complex. For example, the so-called heart health test which checks, among other things, and forgive my pronunciation, triglycerides, homocysteine, and apolipoprotein A, I think it is. How many consumers would really have a knowledge of what these things in isolation, let alone together, might mean? Oh, look, I think very few. I I, I think, you know, um, if you look at the tests that are offered, for instance, there's one there called a BNP, um, we generally do that if a patient has a set of symptoms that perhaps suggest heart failure, and we do it as a differentiator for heart failure or other causes of shortness of breath, and then it can be used to monitor heart failure. But as a diagnostic in a perfectly uh, normal person who has no symptoms, it's a puzzle as to why it's there. I agree with you about things like lipoprotein. We wouldn't routinely organise those. Even the tests is reasons of a, what we call a cardiovascular risk assessment and the overall risk factors of a, of a patient to decide what you do with that. Um, when you start to get down to things like HDL, LDL, triglycerides, it is reasonably complex and it does need interpretation. So one of the concerns that's really been raised here is how are these tests followed up once they're ordered? How are they interpreted? And, and how is that then managed going forward, especially if an abnormal test is, is detected? People may read about the role of some of these factors in emerging research in perfectly credible books or online sites. Uh, I can think of one I've read recently that talks about some of these factors. But is understanding your own medical test a whole different level of capability from understanding the principle of a role a factor may play in conjunction with other factors in heart health? 
are 110%. The whole reason for doing this needs to be in the context of the patient presentation, what's going on. Patient have specific symptoms, in which case, you know, a GP, doctor, or, or nurse will start to look at those symptoms, start to think about what tests are or aren't required in terms and usually an examination to work out what confirms clinical suspicion. So in cases uh, where a person is, is perfectly fit and healthy and may have some anxiety, yeah, the interpretation of these tests become very, very difficult. So context is everything. And um, yeah, he's interpreted become, yeah, yeah, quite a challenge. And they're often a challenge clinically for clinicians themselves. There's a whole lot of things that are often flowing up about whether a test needs follow-up or not, and the exact meaning of the test in terms of context of the patient. So yeah, the other worry here that you've identified is there is a lot on the internet about these tests, which are often not verified. It's often not done with good quality research because not all research is equal. Um, and therefore the interpretation of these become very, very difficult. Have you or your colleagues noticed a rise in the number of patients wanting this? And, and look, in part, again, referencing what might be perfectly credible physicians writing books or raising issues, in part, is there a trend of, oh, um, you know, medicine 2.0 is not being proactive enough or acting early enough on warning signs? Are you getting that kind of feedback from a percentage of patients or a growing percentage of patients or is that a side issue? Oh, look, I, th I think that's possibly a side issue. Um, I, I, I think what sometimes drives some of these, well, no, no, let me be clear on this. Uh, what drives some of these tests are, can be anxiety or underlying anxiety or wanting to know I'm okay and that may have been triggered by reading something in the media or, or on the internet and um, that, that anxiety can, can drive um, doing this. Um, in other cases that I've certainly seen, um, it's driven by sort of a perception of health that may be there. And, it, you know, in those situations, we'll sit down and discuss the context of the tests, actually the science behind what's being done and why it's being done and try and clarify the, the usefulness or otherwise of the test. But again, in doing that, what I've just explained um, is very time consuming and um, does take up a lot of resource. And, you know, it's an unnecessary workload in many cases, um, but it can be sort of a misinterpretation often of what is out there. And there is a myriad of things out on the Internet and a myriad of things that people tap into. Um, we do need often quite a bit of, of clarification to work through the validity is this or otherwise. A, is this an issue said. for GPs? Because GPs were certainly outspoken about their frustration. The previous government did not put greater restriction on direct-to-consumer advertising of medicines in New Zealand, which they argue is extremely liberal uh, in terms in comparison to other countries. And Part of that rationale was the amount of time doctors are spending explaining why something mm, is or mm. isn't needed. Now, is this mm. becoming a trend with the self-ordered tests? Yes, I, I believe it is. And there's been a lot of concerns raised around the country among GPs in particular about, about the trend. We do see this with direct-to-consumer advertising for medication, which has been around for 20 years. And New Zealand is the only country in the Western world that allows us, along with the USA, so we're in a very unique position, but we do spend a, a percentage of our time 
talking to patients about medication that may or may not be appropriate for them that they have seen advertised in the media. And um, yeah, look, that that does waste resource. So a similar thing could be developing here. We've only had these self-directed tests or these these ability to buy tests or to buy blood tests at the laboratory for from memory about last three years, I think it is, two to three years. So it is a trend potentially will start to build over time and produce more demand on general practice services and general practitioners in terms of following up and and talking about these tests. So that is a concern, yes. Legal in Australia, legal in the US, is it banned in the EU? I'm talking about the testing here, the direct-to-consumer testing. Um, so, so, so that so the the, the medication, direct-to-consumer medication, is. Right is allowed in the US and New Zealand. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of the, the European situation with the, the direct um, people, buying of, of yeah, blood tests. If people who have the means to spend $340 getting, a, you know, getting some tests that they've read about, that they want to know as part of their personal health management, mm-hmm. uh, A, is that a problem? And B, if it's not particularly a problem, what is the problem with this that you really want to emphasise? Are some people genuinely um, building anxiety as a result of this? That is potentially an issue, absolutely. And and one of the things we see with blood tests all the time that they may be slightly abnormal, but in the context of the patient, in the context of what actually happens, it's irrelevant, um, for want of a better word. And we can reassure and say, look, we don't need to do anything to to to, to follow that up. So um, yeah, I'd, and I suppose look, there's two parts to this. One is yes, it could produce anxiety, unnecessary anxiety. It may produce unnecessary follow up and investigation that is not required. Um, but again, the range of tests that have been offered in these basic health heart tests um, are a concern because a, lot, a couple of the tests are actually very high grade for very specific indications. And the rationale for doing them is, 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 is quite puzzling. So if we do a cardiovascular risk assessment in the surgery, we'll generally do some lipids, absolutely. Might do a sugar, absolutely, as really the basics to start to put into risk calculator. But doing some of these things, as we mentioned, the BNP test and other tests, are, are really puzzling as to why they're there. And I think it's a question that needs to be asked about what what this has been driven by and is there a financial motive for doing this or is there a genuine desire for, for patients to have control over their own health. The other concern here is the lab is actually in essence ordering the tests on behalf of the patient. Therefore, the lab in many ways should be following up the results of those tests, which is which is good medical practice. And as a doctor, if I order a test, I am responsible for the results and ensuring that the patient gets those results and understands those results. Again, the question I'd have here, the laboratories themselves who are allowing this, why the pathologists and clinicians involved in those laboratories should be following up those tests and ensure they are being followed up and the patient understands the results of the tests and and what they've actually ordered. Is that responsibility part of your... <clears throat> excuse me, practising certificate as a physician? And is there a gap if others are ordering these tests and not doing so? If I order a test, I am responsible for the follow-up to ensure, A, that the patient has informed consent, they understand why the test has been done, A, when the test result comes back, that we do follow up with the test and abnormal results are followed up and discussed so there is a management plan put in place. So I would sort of say that with the laboratories doing this, 
and clinicians at the laboratories doing this, that they should be responsible in the first instance for following up those tests and ensuring the patient understands the test, why it's been done, and what the result actually means. Um, um, because actually that is good medical practice. We're going to speak with the lab shortly, but first, thank you, Brian Betty. First, let's bring in Patty Sher, who is one of the co-authors of this recent Australian study that looked into the benefits of direct-to-consumer medical tests. She's a senior lecturer with the Australian Centre for Health Engagement, Evidence and Values, or ACHIEVE, in the School of Health and Society at the University of Wollongong. Uh, thanks for your time, Dr Smith. Good morning, how are you? Really good, thank you. Again, could you be specific about what your study's looking into and what it's not looking into? For example, self-testing diabetics uh, or people checking their blood pressure on advice of their doctors. What did you look in and what, what did you not look into? Okay, great. So um, so the study looked at direct-to-consumer tests that are sold commercially. So that doesn't require either a doctor's consultation or a particular uh, health program, uh, such as a, the bowel screening uh, program, for example, that does uh, uh, promote these tests to specific uh, populations of people who uh, would likely benefit from the test. We're really talking about um, tests that um, you can uh, purchase uh, without any of those um, medical advice, whether it be from a doctor or from you know other um, healthcare authorities. So we actually looked at um, tests that are um, also um, outside of the laboratory uh ordered tests that Brian mentioned before. So we included um, home testing kits. So they would be quite familiar to people who have done a rat test during the uh, the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, so these are things that um, a company would send you at home and you complete it yourself and you get the results immediately. You do the interpretation at home. And then there's another type, which is called uh, self-sampled lab tests. So the uh, companies would send you a kit and then you collect your samples at home, package that up and um, post that to a laboratory and they'll um, send that to you. And, of course, a, a very uh, large number were the ones that uh, Brian mentioned before where you buy a request online and then you attend a laboratory where they collect the sample and analyse it for what, you. What, what were the most common tests that people were looking for? We talked a bit about some of the heart stuff. Now, the lipid tests and blood sugar and stuff, we all, if we're fortunate enough to have access to a GP, are probably getting done reasonably regularly anyway as part of, uh, as part of that service. Uh, some people very keen to know what their real-time blood glucose is. They want to know what a particular food does to their um, uh, does to their does, does to their blood sugars, for example. But what was the range, and and how complex did some of the testing get? Sure. So that was one of the most surprising findings of the study is the sheer number and variety of what was being sold. And this is just a uh, study that looked at what was available in Australia. And the range was very surprising. So we we found um, over 100 types of tests that amounted to about 500 different types of products. And it's quite important to think about them as not a one-size-fits-all T-shirt. There is, because of the sheer variety that is out there, we need to look at every, uh, you know, all tests in, in context, of course. And um, we the the most uh, the most sort of biggest group that is being advertised were so-called health checks or 
um, uh, the sort of health status um, test that looked at, um, as you mentioned before, uh, for example, your hormone levels or your or your nutritional status. So these are not actually indicating a particular kind of condition that a person might have, but it's it's simply measuring um, those biometrics. And there's actually very little scientific evidence to show that these tests are actually going to benefit um, uh, an everyday consumer who tests them. Hormones will uh, fluctuate over time, over, you know, a month or different seasons. Um, and these uh, nutritional status tests may also change. So and some of them don't actually use uh, clearly proven methods to test them. So there's a lot of sort of different risks that you w- would like to think about when you're you're taking these tests. You found 17% you would call outright quackery. Could you give us an example? So, for example, uh, so there's there's two types. So basically either the tests themselves are non-evidence-based tests. So, for example, um, food sensitivity or food allergy, they are real conditions, but the actual tests used for them, such as hair analysis, are actually non-evidence-based tests. So that would be a kind of quack test if you'd like. And there's another type of um, what we call would be called uh, quackery would be um, for conditions that are not um, are not uh, considered um, real conditions, if you'd like, or agreed by the general medical community. So leaky gut syndrome, for example, is a very controversial diagnosis because uh, within the medical community, there isn't a good consensus that this is actually um, a condition. So you, you if you test for these, uh, you know, using non-evidence-based tests or testing for non-evidence-based conditions, um, the likely harm that you, that might cause uh, the consumer um, could be really uh, quite, um, you know, there would be a potential for harm. So, for example, if you go down a track of treating conditions that don't exist or uh, using other unproven treatments to um to, to treat those uh, conditions, um, you know, you might be going down a rabbit hole or even be further harmed by those Can things. Can I ask you about blood sugar? Because, again, you will have quite thoroughly credible uh, and qualified health advocates questioning whether where we draw the line sometimes on something like um, blood sugar uh, is a tad arbitrary and whether being warned earlier that your uh, number is climbing might be a good thing to know. Is that quite a common test? There's a a number you literally tick over and you're considered pre-diabetic, right? Um, And and the conversation will be had with your doctor about what to do about that. But, But are those tests proving quite popular and are they accurate, reliable, valid tests? So for people who are diagnosed with diabetes, um, we're not really talking, these are not direct to consumer tests that we're talking about. We're really talking about people who haven't been diagnosed with diabetes. And pre-diabetes isn't really a recognised condition in its own. It's uh, it's really a higher blood sugar before, you know, it, it means before you're actually um, diagnosed. And uh, there are still, it's still quite a controversial um 
uh, aspect of he- of health. And so while it is quite important to um, manage your own lifestyle, if you do have high blood sugar, um, there isn't actually very much evidence of people with higher blood sugar um, before they're di- uh, diabetic, that they would develop di- diabetes um, eventually. And then it actually, if you do actually label yourself as being pre-diabetic, it gives you a lot of, um, uh, it, it gives you a label that you may not be too worried about. But I think it is still quite important to be aware of how important it is to, you know, exercise and eat well. We're getting into so this era of personalised yes, medicine, it, though, aren't we, Patty? Mm. And, and, and I'm, part of this, I'm sure, is what is driving the interest. Um, sure. Brian was talking about his concern being the anxiety this can cause some people and, of course, just interpreting what they're seeing incorrectly. But it's probably not going to go away as the ability to move towards a more personalised model and the interest that is being driven around that grows. So what what was what was your consensus at the end of this? What's your advice to consumers? Was there anything that did show a real and actual benefit above using a professional to determine when and where you'd get tests done? So we did find a small number of tests, sort of just over ten percent of the tests that were um, would be potentially useful if they did exist independently outside of um, the medical system. So we that primarily were um, tests for sexually infected. Uh, sexually transmitted infections. And so uh, generally these uh, conditions have, a, I guess, a sense of social stigma attached to it. So it might actually prevent some people from wanting to uh, go to a clinic and getting that tested. So having something independently available might be useful for them or conditions that are uh, have, have generally been a little bit more under-tested, I suppose. But these are just such a small number that are around compared to the vast um, majority that are actually not going to be that useful. So I guess um, going back to your point about personalising medicine, it's it, personalising medicine is also personalising a lot of responsibility. So it's giving consumers um, a lot of control and um, access, but also giving them a lot of responsibility as well. And so my message to consumers is really not only think about your um, accessibility to these tests, but also thinking about um, taking more time to think about whether you actually need these tests. Um, is if, if you're leading a generally healthy lifestyle um, and there's no symptoms, it might not be something that you need to be worried about. Um, so have a check. And is it something that your doctor would actually recommend? Is it going to actually lead down to a rabbit hole of you know unnecessary investigations or unnecessary labels that you're not going to uh, benefit from in the long long term? So have a, you know, Take take that um, take that power um, that you have and um, have a think about whether these tests are beneficial. And think about whether the test is a good quality test. Is it coming from a credible laboratory? Um, and uh, and are they are they made um, uh, made and uh, produced with information that you can trust? And also, um, are you understanding the result? Thank you, Patty Sure co-author of the study. Listening in is uh, Melissa Yessel. Now, she's with Awanui Laboratory. She's clinical lead chemical pathology. Awanui Labs operates all the community and hospital medical laboratories in the South Island and the Wellington region and is 95% publicly funded. It also offers consumers extensive tests without a doctor's referral at their own cost. Morena, welcome, Melissa. Uh, good morning, Catherine. 
First, could you address the point that Dr Betty was making earlier? As far as he's concerned, if he orders a test, he is responsible for the results, for assessing them, for explaining them uh, to the patient. Does your laboratory do that? Uh, yes, Catherine. Um, currently, the consumer receives the same results the GP receives from our laboratory. Um, we also give a link on our website to Pathology Explained, which is an Australian-based service backed by the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. And this website would explain to patients what each test will tell you, why you should get tested, if there is any test preparation involved, um, and also some relevant disease background information. We do give these links on our website. It doesn't sound the In same to me as sitting down with my doctor and having explained what some obscure uh, Latin term means and what a number does or doesn't mean or what it might mean in combination with something else. You don't give that personal one-to-one -one attention. We don't give that personal one-to-one -one attention for every single result, but for every result that's abnormal, we will contact a patient. If there is a critical result, we personally contact the patient about the result. We always advise a patient to contact the healthcare provider and to go and discuss the result if there's any concern. If it's a critical result, this can actually lead to a patient to access healthcare more quickly and to get to a doctor we doctors are, are the practices are overwhelmed yeah we, we know that we understand that we, we report on that a lot why do you offer the tests what what is the rationale to a private person paying and not coming referred i think what's important to remember is that direct to consumer testing is available it's available in the country from retail yes, providers available Wh online What services. is its rationale? All these tests are not created equal. For patients requesting tests from an online service, these tests are often not validated. They are unregulated. You're not answering my question. Tested. May I ask you, given you're 95% publicly funded, do you make a profit out of the provision of these tests? Are they a revenue stream that is profitable? Not, it's, it's, it's always profitable if you do sell a test. It's not our main revenue stream. That um, wasn't my question. Is it an additional revenue stream that is profitable? Yes, it is. Okay. And is that a key reason for offering it? No, the key reason for us offering this is that we want to offer patients a clinically validated test that's run through an accredited laboratory. All these direct-to-consumer testing that's available to New Zealanders are not always regulated, and the results they get from that can be very dangerous. So we are offering a service where if the patient takes this result to their healthcare provider, that they will have a valid and a safe result that the consumer and the clinician can have assurance, trust and confidence in that this result is a yep. valid result. The question and is whether they should have started with the physician. I understand. I thank you for the, for the, um, for the uh, explanation. I thank all of you for this. Some feedback coming in. We'll get to that too. Thank you for your time, Melissa. Yes, or thanks also to Patty Sher and to Brian Betty.